The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Hey, kids. Did you enjoy that movie about the X-Men in 1962? Well, wait till you see the X-Men in 1972. Also our future. This is Totally Super. Hi! Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are reviewing the most successful of the X-Men movies, X-Men Days of Future Past. We are recording this just like five, six days after X-Men Dark Phoenix has become available to the public. And we are only two movies away from that movie, from the crashing and burning of the X-Men franchise. And yet it's easy to for the, forget. The, for the second time. Um, well, the, but the difference being that Dark Phoenix is the end. It's the, there will be no more. It is the it is the franchise going out on a whimper. And it's hard to imagine that only five years ago, only five years ago, only two films ago, X-Men was at the top of its game. It was competing on an Avengers level with the other superhero movies. It was doing as well as the minor Marvel movies, which is no minor thing. It was this movie that brought together the two casts of the original and X-Men First Class into an extravaganza that everyone felt the need to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, This movie came out on May 10th, 2014. Uh, and then the wide release was May 23rd, 2014. It clocks in at 131 minutes. The budget for the movie was 200 to $220 million. Again, that can't be overstated. Um, and the box office was $747.9 million. Uh, by, um, by comparison, X-Men First Class had a budget of 140 to 160 and pulled in a modest 353.6 million dollars and this is worth noting because when you look at how much money a movie makes you always have to keep in mind that the studio does not get every one of those dollars back and the budget for producing the film is sometimes even exceeded by the budget for marketing the film so when X-Men First Class came out it had a budget of 140 to 160 million then also maybe another 100 million for uh, for your advertising. So you spent 260 and then when 353 comes in and some of that has to go to the theaters and the distributors and all that stuff, you're looking at it barely a profit. So the idea that they said, okay, we got barely a profit. Let's throw in another $80 million to make a movie. It paid off. It paid off in spades. It was a bold choice. Well, where were you when you first saw this movie and what was your first impression? Um, oh, gosh, I don't remember exactly where I was. I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. Um, and my first impression walking out of the theater was, I think this is my favorite one yet. Um, it's worth noting that uh, I've said it, that it's worth noting. I had to find a new phrase. There had been two movies directed by Brian Singer. That would be X-Men and X2. The third movie was directed by Brett Ratner. Uh, Then X-Men. So we had the third movie, X-Men Last Stand. Then X-Men Origins Wolverine, which was terrible. We'll talk about it one day. And then X-Men First Class was directed by Matthew Vaughn. So this series that was started off by Brian Singer 
is now finally getting Brian Singer to return to helm the film. And again, I don't want to get political. We're not going to talk today about the various allegations about Brian Singer. That's not what we're here for. Um, but this was supposed to be the return to form after the disastrous uh, after the disastrous movies from other people and from the underperforming X-Men First Class. It's supposed to be Brian Singer bringing the X-Men back to where they were supposed to be. One of the things I want to talk to you today about Arthur is that we have talked up to this point about how X-Men first class doesn't seem to fit with the other X-Men movies and how you said, Oh, but these are like myths. You can have this myth and that myth, and they can be have different versions of the same characters doing different things. And it doesn't matter if they conflict. And this is the movie. That's the linchpin of everything that bothers me. And I'm going to be interested to hear how you get past it. Um, did you see this in the theater? Uh, yes, I did see it in the theater. And just to address that one thing, I will, uh, I will let you know that in my head, I've given myself, uh, an estimate as to exactly, as I was watching this in my head, I was giving myself an estimate as to, okay, exactly how long do I think Justin is going to spend talking about continuity issues? And, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you what that number is. We'll find out at the end of the, at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Um, um, also, I, I have to a l- little bit. Let me just give a sure. quick shot. I, I love that you just uh, mentioned the whole it's worth noting thing because I'd forgotten to mention. Uh, so one of our loyal listeners, uh, he wrote in to me. Uh, he's a, an old friend of mine, and he wrote and said he's very much enjoying the podcast. But also, uh, if he had to retitle it, he would call it "To Be Fair." It's worth noting uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I say "To Be Fair" all the time, and you say, "I was like, oh, that's." Uh, no, that's that's truthful. That's that's accurate. So now it it hurts a little, but it's accurate. Yeah, a little, a little. But, you know, but but, you know, that's how the healing begins. Um, did you had you read X-Men Days of Future Past prior to seeing this film? That's a huge. I thing had it had with. been it had been a while ago. Obviously, there's a lot that's changed from the original comic, uh, but the, the concept is pretty much the same. Yeah, sure. X-Men Days of Future Past is uh, a comic book that came out in the 80s. I think it came out in 1981. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. Um, it was still Claremont era, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, it was Uncanny X-Men uh, 141 and 142, I believe. Yes, uh, 141, 42. That was off the top of my head. You're welcome. And it introduces wow. quite a few things in the in the X-Men canon uh the sentinels are not one of those things the sentinels were introduced well earlier as a matter of fact the dark phoenix saga the phoenix saga itself has sentinels in it in the event that happens that eventually leads to the creation of the phoenix the sentinels had been around for a while as a concept giant robots that wanted to kill mutants but this new version this idea of of the learning supercomputer that's going to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn until finally it can't be beaten was a relatively new thing in the x-men and of course this alternate future is responsible for many things including one of my favorite x-men rachel summers who eventually becomes the phoenix and excalibur is introduced in these comics um, it, the the first issue, X Men one forty one, it starts with a picture of Wolverine and Kitty Pride, and Wolverine's holding Kitty Pride up against a wall, and there's a big poster on the wall with pictures of all the X Men behind him, and it just says slain, apprehended, apprehended, slain, 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 apprehended, just showing all the X Men have been killed. And then X-Men 142 has an iconic shot of Wolverine's skin being flayed off his bones by a sentinel blast. 
these are dark, serious, intense science fiction comics that it must, I can't just say it must be noted, that one cannot ignore came out three <laughs> years came out three years before the Terminator. The Terminator came out mm. three years after this. So I'm not saying that the Terminator stole from this. Clearly, Harlan Ellison is a is an influence on a lot of this. But the idea of killer robots in the future and you have to time travel back in time to stop them from being created as a thing actually existed in Days of Future Past before we saw it on screen hmm. as the Terminator. And now also, I almost said it again. I, I, almost, which... I, I almost just freaking said it <laughs> yeah. again, Arthur. I, it's this this entire podcast the listeners are just going to be hearing us almost say something and then catch ourselves we must also consider the fact that at the time that james cameron was working on pre-production and the screenplay for the terminator this came out and i would wonder how much of this was at least made available to him as a thing because uncanny x-men at this point was the best-selling comic in the world so well, it's interesting that you bring up the the whole the sentinels and the idea of the supercomputer that can just learn and learn until it can't be beaten uh there's an old concept with stories that the monsters in our stories are always reflections of what we fear most in our society at that time and in the early 80s like late 70s early 80s uh, that's when this concept, uh, like computers, were really starting to become a thing. Um, but that is also where the serious fear of wait, we're already starting to see computers starting to take jobs here and there. And as we started discovering more and more of what computers could do, this is where we got the rise of the genuine fear, which we have not really lost, of the the supercomputer, the technological revolution that wipes out humanity. Uh, around this time, you had Days of Future Past, you had Terminator, you had uh, even Alien, which, I mean, the main bad guy in Alien is sort of the reflection of uh, our fear of what so happens if something, if something that is more perfect, evolutionary speaking, than we are uh, happens. But even in Alien, uh, the cyborgs in it and the, the sure. powerful computers there, there's so we're seeing this. Um, I think I don't know whether Days of Future Past directly influenced Terminator, but it's undeniable that they are tapping into the same archetype that's going on right now in, that was going on in 1980. I think that one could look at this movie if they weren't aware of the comics that came before and the timing of the comics and think that the movie is ripping off the Terminator. I think that you could wonder that like, oh, this, mm -hmm. they're just doing the Terminator with X-Men. And I just wanted to point out that the X-Men were doing it before Terminator. Also, the influence that it had on the characters in Star Trek, the Borg, can't be understated. The mm. idea of, oh, yeah. of, of robots that you can kill two or three of them. There's another one coming after that will have learned from everything that you did that you can't kill in the same way twice. Mm -hmm. is it's a what i mean it's just a brilliant idea the plot of the <laughs> comics just to sort of get it out there is that with the x-men about to be destroyed rachel summers the daughter of jean gray and scott summers uses her power 
to send the psyche of Kitty Pride back through time into her younger self. And Kitty rallies the X-Men into stopping Mystique from assassinating Senator Robert Kelly, which is considered to be the first step in the creation of the X-Men or the creation of the Sentinels and the mm-hmm. anti-mutant hysteria that, that comes after it. At the same time, because time is passing in both eras, the Sentinels are closing in on the X-Men who are protecting Kitty at all costs. And by the end, it is unclear what really happened to that Kitty in the future. But actually, at that point, it's unclear what happened to that Kitty in the future. But the X-Men do stop Mystique. By the way, the first appearance of Mystique is in these comics as well stops mystique from uh from destroying from killing senator kelly and we assume that future never came to pass we learn later in the comics that that future continued as an alternate timeline because of course rachel rachel had many other horrible things happen to her before she sent herself back into the past and this was the the fact that she was living in this alternate timeline that didn't match her memories was a huge part of her character so that is the the history of Days of Future Past, the comics. And you'll see some of that is reflected in the movie. And there are things that you're trying to pay homage to in the comics by including the movie that I'll talk about that don't make any sense. But this is where we are in the comics. Uh, I made a promise last time that I would do something. What version of the movie did you watch? Oh, I just watched the regular version. I watched the Rogue Cut. For you, ladies and gentlemen, I watched the Rogue Cut, and I can tell you where it's going to differ in significant ways after we hear our plot summary. But gosh darn it, I would love to hear a plot summary. Happen you to have one? All right. Yes, I do, sort of. So uh, because of my schedule, I have not had time to sit down and write the usual thought-provoking plot summaries for which you guys have gotten used to. Um, however... Uh, so I'm going to try to do a uh, an old Justin two-minute uh, plot summary. However, it occurred to me watching this that for a movie about time travel, this film is surprisingly straightforward. Uh, this was the most easy-to-follow time travel film that I have possibly ever watched. Uh, so, that being said, we start in the future. It is a future where mutants have been hunted to near extinction, including the humans that help them, uh, by these sentinel creatures. We see the Sentinels attacking some of the mutants who managed to escape. They essentially set up the idea that if we can send somebody back in time to prevent this one event, which was Mystique, both killing Bolivar Trask, the creator of the Sentinels, but then also getting captured so that they were able to use her blood uh, in order to help the Sentinels adapt. If they could stop that, they would avert the future. It is not Kitty Pride who goes back. Although, strangely, Kitty Pride actually has the ability to send somebody back, which they never fully explain. Uh, Wolverine is determined to be the only person whose brain can handle it because of his regenerative powers. They send Wolverine back to meet Professor X, a young Professor X who is a psychologically broken slob in his mansion. Uh, He is able to walk again because of treatment that Hank McCoy has given him, but that same treatment prevents him from using his powers, and he is fine with that. Logan tells them about what's going to happen, and that in order to prevent it, they need Magneto. Magneto is currently being held in the Pentagon, deep below it, for assassinating JFK. They go to Pietro Maximoff, Quicksilver, uh, not the other Quicksilver that we know from the Marvel uh, universe, but a completely different 
Quicksilver. And with his help, they go to the Pentagon and break Magneto out. And that's all we see of Quicksilver. It's a brief period of time, but very enjoyable. From there, the Magneto, Xavier, and Logan, they travel to the Paris Accords, where the peace for the Vietnam War is being signed. And that is where Mystique is trying to kill Bolivar Trask. They stop her from doing so. However, Magneto is so convinced that the only way to, pre to prevent the future is to keep anyone from ever getting their hands on Mystique's biological material, he tries to kill her. In the ensuing fight that happens, it gets filmed, and the entire world sees a bunch of mutants essentially laying wreckage to Paris. Mystique escapes, as do the others. Magneto breaks away from the main group, and Bolivar Trask is given new ammunition, so to speak, to go to the Senate and say, look, I need my funding for my Sentinel project. So even though that instance of Mystique killing Bolivar Trask has been averted, the future is not yet protected. The During this time, Logan convinces Professor X to regain his powers uh, because he needs them in order to find Mystique. Magneto goes off on his own warpath with his own ideas about how to change things. And then it pretty much from there goes to setting up the final... Uh, the final showdown in the 70s, which is on the White House lawn, where President Nixon is going to address the nation about the start of the Sentinel program, protecting humanity from this new mutant threat. Magneto shows up, having hijacked the Sentinels to his own whims. He takes, I believe that's RFK Stadium, and drops it around the White House, uh, locking everybody in and essentially attempts to kill the president. Mystique is the one who has shown up, sort of infiltrated her way in, realizes that if Magneto tries to do that, that will bring about this war. She is the one who stops him. Uh, she shoots him kind of through the neck. It's a good shot. And then lets Professor Xavier take control of his mind. However, we still have the absolute crucial moment of Mystique turning, seeing Bolivar Trask, the man who has killed so many of her mutant brethren. And in this moment, I actually, as the viewer, come to realize, oh, this entire movie has been Mystique's arc as she makes the crucial decision to drop the gun and walk away. We flash forward to the future, where actually we've been flashing back and forth for a bit, seeing uh, seeing the Sentinels invading the final fortress, where it's been kind of cool. We've seen all of our own our old actor friends. Look, it's Halle Berry's Storm. Hey, it's good to see. You. Oh God, she was stabbed. Hey, it's Ian McKellen as Magneto. Oh, that's wonderful to see him. Oh, he just got a big iron chunk in his stomach. So basically, we're seeing all of these old friends getting killed off one by one. And then just at the last minute, that's when Mystique drops the gun. That future gets wiped away. Wolverine, who previously Magneto had stuffed full of iron and dropped in the Potomac. Wolverine then wakes up in the new future in which we have this perfect, idyllic uh, Xavier Mutant Academy. He walks around. He sees all these old friends. We see Kelsey Grammer as Beast. He turns a corner and in a touching moment that I was not prepared for when I first saw it, uh, sees Jean Grey. And even more touching than his reaction to seeing Jean Grey is his reaction to seeing Scott Summers and actually being glad to see him. And then we finish with Xavier asking Logan to say, what's the last thing that you remember? And it is Logan being recovered from the Potomac by a man who looks like Stryker, but could be Mystique, question mark, and Fiend. A wonderful review of a movie. I uh, While you were talking, it also occurred to me that I forgot to mention that this movie comes 
after the movie The Wolverine. Um, and I figured it would be important for me to mention that that was the fact. Um, did did the Wolverine happen before or after X Men First Class? The Wolverine happens after X Men First Class. Um, like it was released after First Class. Yes, and as a matter oh, of fact, okay. the the Wolverine uh, has flashbacks, and we'll talk about it when we do the Wolverine trilogy. The Wolverine has flashbacks to the death of Jean Grey, um, and and like things that happened in First Class that were difficult for for Wolverine. So that's worth that, that's worth noting. I met, I forgot to mention that, um, and this is where I'm going to get into uh, my first issue with the film. <laughs> My Let's dive issue. right on in, shall we? Let's dive right in. So in the Wolverine, in the movie, the Wolverine, Wolverine one has some claws broken off uh, Two, at the end of the movie Wolverine. We see the Professor Xavier, who was dead at the end of X-Men, the last stand happens to be back and. Um, if you go into the the events of um, and keep in mind, this is a Professor Xavier who we saw turned to ash. Um, uh, if you look at the things that happened in X-Men for at the end of X-Men Origins Wolverine, uh, Wolverine escapes from, uh, as I mentioned before, escapes from a place with a uh, with a clearly sort of adult or, or kid ish uh, Scott Summers. Um, X-Men First Class had Alex Summers, who would have been like 20 years, 30 years older than Scott. Maybe he's his dad. I'm not sure. Um, we have all these continuity issues that come from this movie. And and the problem that we have, the main problem that we have is that X-Men First Class is if we were to look at the chronology of the X-Men, it begins in X-Men Origins Wolverine, which starts in the 1800s is where X-Men Origins Wolverine is. And it X-Men Origins Wolverine proceeds through Wolverine's life up to, we assume, just a couple of years before the events in the first X-Men movie. And in X-Men First Class, they do meet Wolverine. He's there. They reference that meeting. So last time we're like, oh, that's just a cameo. They just got to do that. Well, no, this time they drive it home. They go, hey, we said the F word before. We're going to blow our F word back on you here because that moment absolutely happened. So we must at this point consider X-Men First Class to be part of the X-Men, of the X-Men, I guess, prime universe because they interact at this point. Just to, to interject, po- it's 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 yes. it's important to me that everyone realize that right now I am picturing Justin in a tweed coat with like the little leather patches on the elbow, standing in front of a class with like a like an overhead projector and all of these different transparencies that he's switching back and forth between. And either like that vehemently at I either that or I'm in a 1970s style basement with an open bag of Doritos and a cork board and string <laughs> and One so much string. <laughs> One of those two things are true. <laughs> now, here's the last thing to keep in mind with all of this. Somehow, at the end of this movie, Scott and Gene are back. And I'm not quite sure where Wolverine has ended up in the timeline. And that's something I really wonder about. 
when he wakes up, is he waking up prior to the events of X-Men The Last Stand? Or prior oh, no. to the... oh, oh, I've got that. I, I, I've got your explanation for that. Sure. I don't have your explanation. I don't have your explanation for everything. I will 100% grant you that. Okay. But the it's very clear by when Wolverine wakes up, there's that mm-hmm. spinning globe thing, um, which is kind of a futuristic little alarm clock. Also, Kitty Pride does say uh, she retur- the what activates the time change is when the person's consciousness is returned to that same point. So when Wolverine wakes up at the end, he is actually waking up in terms of the year of whatever the year that final uh, Sentinel attack on the fortress was. The reason why Scott and Jean are alive, and I think what they're saying with that is then Mystique, in the original timeline, Mystique killed Bolivar Trask, got captured, all that happened. But that Sentinel program still took 40 years for them to develop. So in in X-Men 1, X-2, and X-3, behind the scenes, the Sentinel program was still being developed. So what we are seeing when we see the post-apocalyptic future is the future of the original trilogy. So when Mystique drops the gun and actually then just sort of she she doesn't become a hero, but we do see Mystique in the few in, you know, in the next few films of Apocalypse and that which certainly implies that she's much more willing to work with the mutants again. What they've essentially done is say nothing in X-Men 1, 2, or 3 happened because that was the old timeline, Um, or at least it certainly didn't happen in the same way. So what we are seeing at the end of this film is Wolverine waking up in a X-Men universe in the future where neither he nor any of us viewers actually know what took place between 1972 and 2040 or wherever they are then. I suppose it can be assumed that Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix happen in this new timeline, which also explains why you could have the Phoenix Saga in X3, but then a completely different Phoenix Saga in Dark Phoenix, because again, we're in a new timeline. Oh, we'll get there. Oh, we'll get there. Because, I mean, all right, you know, I'm going to, you still haven't seen Dark Phoenix, right? Not yet. All right, so I don't want to spoil anything that happens in Dark Phoenix, except to say that Events in Dark Phoenix necessarily make it so that X-Men 1, 2, and 3 did not happen and drive home your point. Also, events in X-Men Dark Phoenix make it so that things that you see at the end of this movie also can't ever happen. And that becomes a a huge sticking point. Um, It's almost like like Wolverine maybe got like shuttled to a third utopian timeline somehow. And then that begs the question. So in Logan, is this happy ending that he gets here? Are these all the people that get killed when the things that events, that the events reference in Logan happen? Um, it's really, it's, it's a really interesting question, but there are just continuity, continuity problems galore. When you compare the films, things that you know, look, the end of ninjas versus vampires Features the death of a beloved main character named Kyle. And then in Ninjas vs. Monsters, Kyle is alive again and says, essentially, nobody knows how I became alive again, but it's got to be for a reason. And that's all it ever says. That's what I wrote. I wrote that. I directed that. That's the movie I released. But they don't even do that for for Professor X. Professor X's death at the end of X-Men The Last Stand is absolutely critically final. It's a pretty rough death. And yet he is totally and 100% back here. And it's problematic for me that that's the well, case. Well, what, what about the post-credit scene in X3? Where, where, where you know, his, somebody with, where Xavier's voice clearly wakes up next to Moira. Yeah, 
I guess. I mean, sort of. Like, look, if you if you were if you were going to sit here and say that saying something like no one knows how I came back to life, but it's got to be for a reason is ample justification. No, I'm saying I'm, no, I'm saying it's the no, worst no, but, thing but I you, ever wrote. It's the worst <laughs> thing. I'm embarrassed by it. I can't even watch it now. No, that's my point. It's terrible. It's a, it's a, why did I do that? And so well, I just. So here's a, no, pro- here's the thing. Look, we can yeah. we can both be in agreement that up until this point, X3 was definitely the worst of the saga so far, right? Um. Okay. Uh, forgetting no. forgetting forgetting X Men Origins Wolverine. Well, you can't forget that. Miss. That's the worst. It's the well, that's but, the yeah, worst. Okay. Of the saga. It was bad. Is what I'm trying to get across, right? Yes. Um. I am now going to mention a, if I remember, one of your favorite television shows from you know 10, 20 years ago, the Highlander series. Uh, I remember sure. you very much enjoyed that series, right? Um. I know. Highlander I know exactly series, where you're going. You know exactly where I'm going. Um. Highlander <laughs> one happened. And then and that did pretty well. Then yes. Highlander 2 happened and completely changed everything. Uh, and every movie, bo- both every movie and the television show of Highlander after Highlander 2. I'm not even saying that the movies afterwards were very good because they weren't. But the television series certainly had some great moments to it. And they had all of those great minutes because there was just this collective agreement of, you know what? We're just going to pretend that that didn't happen. Now, that Highlander 2 didn't happen. Now, I'm not saying that that's what they did here, because obviously, I mean, they even have flashbacks to actual scenes of X3 in this film. But there is something to be said for, you know, why let the mistakes of movies in the past, why let the mistakes of movies in the past force you into telling a bad story in the present? Um, I get that. I get that. The problem is, and this is, you know, the the X-Men movies can be forgiven somewhat for the fact that they are right on the cusp of this new way that we tell stories, both in television and movies. When the X-Men movies first came out, um, they were, with the with very, very, very few exceptions, uh, one of them being Star Wars. Most sequelized movies weren't generally that related to one another. The idea of a movie that ends on a bit of a cliffhanger that you bring into the next one, that was not something that was being that was being done that much in movies at the time. They would continue the story, but they would sort of tell their own story. Um, the same thing was true for TV. Uh, the, the original Buffy uh, show, and I say the original because eventually but there will be a new one. The Buffy show was serialized, but also every episode was sort of its own story. And then there was like 10% serialization. That has changed now, largely in movies, specifically the Marvel movies, where you have 20 movies and the idea is they're all in canon perfectly with one another. They're all telling one big story and all these movies are part of this one big story. And now the expectation is they're all part of one story, whereas the X-Men movies clearly are disorganized. Nobody sat down and said, here's the story we're trying to tell. Here's the basic plan for the story. Let's move the story out. Nobody did that. They were just like, let's make another movie. And it relates to the previous movies in this way. And eventually they got to a point where we just want to make this movie and we'll keep and lose what we need to keep and lose. For some people like you, that's okay. But for people like me who I love the continuity, the continuity is so important to me. The continuity, the idea that I can escape into this universe is so important to me that when the universe breaks, I have an issue with it. Does that make any sense? It does. Um, so I, that is sort of the, the, the place where I fall in the continuity. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. 
Um, when we get to the ratings at the end, I have to decide whether even it drops it down a little bit for me. When it comes up, it's an issue. I will say that as things progress in this series, it you just can't ignore it anymore. And that's when it becomes even more of an issue. All that being said, let's talk about the movie that we have. The opening... Let's talk about the actual movie. Yeah, the, the opening of this film is just this spectacular action scene. And I've got to hand it to Brian Singer, who, if I had any complaints about the X-Men movies that he directed prior to this, uh, X-Men and X2, and also his turn at Superman with Superman Returns, they are movies where the action is not great. X2 had some pretty good action. X-Men, the first X-Men movie action was terrible. Superman had all the money in the world, and it was just Superman picking up more and more heavy things. So the fact that this movie opens with maybe the best use of teleportation I'd ever seen, with X2 Mm -hmm. being the first best use, um, this is... The action scene is nuts. What Blink does, opening the portals, it's a game of portal with an action movie. Thor The Dark World would do it much later. This is awesome stuff, is it not? You're totally right. The portal work that Blink does is amazing. Uh, I never thought of it before, but it's absolutely... It's a it's a fast paced game of Portal, you know, with deadly consequences. Well, okay, that's actually Portal. The game has deadly consequences as well. So it's it's a fast paced game of Portal. (laughs) Um, As a fight choreographer, which is one of the things that you do and that you're you're good at. What what did you think of the way that they staged the the fight? Because what one thing that you have always told me is that a a fight should tell a story and b you should have moments of wow. And I feel like this. This gives it to you because of the cheat that you can do at the end where anything can happen in the fight and it's okay because you're going to reboot the fight at the end um, gives you so much freedom to do whatever you want. Um, but mm-hmm. like in rewatching it uh, from your fight choreographer, from your epic fight choreographic stance, uh, given that that is one of the things you're working on right now, um, did it did it hit you this time around to go, whoa, this is like the story that it's telling is 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 so vivid. I, I don't think it didn't blow me away like viscerally as, oh, my gosh, this is an amazing fight sequence. Um, however, when you mentioned to me oh, this fight season was really good. I went back and I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, no, it totally was. Um, for a couple of reasons. They, when you are working with superpowers, uh, you know, you need, mo- in any fight, you need moments that stand out. And frequently, what will help that when you're using superpowers is a clever or new, fresh look or use of the superpowers. Uh, the fastball special being an example. Uh, Iron Man shooting his beam into Captain America's shield and then that shooting out to hit things like those are moments that make you go. Oh, cool. Uh, Everything Blink is doing with this uh, with her portal work fits that mold. Exactly. Uh, Another thing that a good fight needs to do because a good fight can't just look cool. Um, You've got to be able to tell the story well and certainly every move was clear. Everything that was happening was very clear. You also need to serve the emotional tone of the scene. Um, you know, when we were reviewing kick-ass, those fights, they had to have a sense of brutality, but also whimsy to them, uh, which they did very, very well. The emotional tone that they needed to set in this was that not just grim apocalyptic, but almost despairing. Like we needed to see the horror of the kind of universe that the mutants were in and the threat that they had to face. And certainly one of the best ways they could do that would be by having a sentinel, uh, you know, grab Bobby Drake, who is in his Iceman form, choke him out, break his neck, rip his ice head off, and then shatter it. 
because not only is that a memorable moment, but because Bobby Drake was a previous character, because we knew him already, it, wow, does it say very clearly, this is how bad things are right now. It does a really good job of establishing just how hopeless it is. And I think by using the minor characters, it gives you the hope that, oh, when you get the major characters involved, they're not going to be as damaged by this. So, yeah, they, when, they, sa- they save killing off the major characters for the for the second Sentinel fight at the end of the film. Well, I think as we talk about the film, we should sort of necessarily break it up into the two different films that it is. And here are the two different films. Film number one, the X-Men of the future must send Kitty Pride. And let's just say it now. It doesn't make any sense. Clearly, they're sending Wolverine because Wolverine's the star. That's why they're sending mm-hmm. him. It makes no sense. The Kitty Pride's phasing powers, they just go, you use your phasing powers to send him back in time. Okay. I guess that's a thing that you can do. <laughs> um, Couldn't they have, like, here's the th- I guess they, they just needed to get Kitty Pride into that. Couldn't they have just had a mutant whose mutant ability is to send people back a few days in time? Like, you well, literally could create this mutant out of whole cloth, and we'd be fine with it. Well, we had seen Ellen Page as Kitty before, so getting her... At this point, she, this is post-Juno. Um, when she was first Kitty, it was not post-Juno, so seeing her here was an opportunity to to use a star who wanted to come back to the franchise that you couldn't use before. It made the movie seem more star-studded. Um, it would have made most sense... For it to be Xavier doing it, right? Because then you have the connection between Xavier and Wolverine. That's what would be oh, the yeah. thing that, that sort of makes the most sense to do. But of course, that yeah, is, it does, you know. It makes me think, if you, to make something star-studded, I can imagine a studio conversation where the, where the people are saying, that the people trying to get the project greenlit are saying, all right, so here's the thing. Based on this storyline, we get Hugh Jackman as your main star. He's still the major character. We get the reunion of Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in that we get all of the people that we had in first class. And there's some studio exec going, ah, that's I just don't think that is going to be enough of a draw for the people. And then somebody is like, what if we got Ellen Page back too from that indie movie Juno? And the studio goes, yes, now that is just enough. Well, here's the thing, though. She's an easy get. She, Everybody who signed on the dotted line to make X3 signed multi-picture deals. So they probably were able to get her very inexpensively because mm. she did sign a multi-picture deal. And when she was in first class, she was a nobody. And then she made Juno. So she's coming fresh off Juno. Everybody kind of knows her. And they're like, yeah, do it. Get her. Let's get everyone we can. I will say at the mm-hmm. end uh, that saying, this it, is. It, I will. I will absolutely grant that is probably a much more likely way of how things went down. Yeah. Um. So you have the movie where where they need to protect her sending Wolverine back and they need to bite, battle to the last man in order to keep the one person alive. The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many and everybody sacrifice. It's the saving private Ryan of X-Men movies, save her mm. and Wolverine at all costs because this mission must succeed and nothing else matters with a mm. good old reboot at the end where you can feel horrible when everybody dies, but then you, you know, you kind of know that everyone's going to come back and the movie is not so despairingly depressing as it could yeah. otherwise be. Um, it is at this point that I will talk about the additional movie that you did not see. You see, okay. When Wolverine first sees William Stryker 
in when Wolverine first sees William Stryker, he starts having a nervous breakdown. And when he has a nervous breakdown, uh, his mind starts reverting. They say to him, you need to keep your mind calm as best you can when you're in the past. Otherwise, you're going to jump back sort of like uh, somewhere in time. You can't be reminded of, of, of this emotionally. You can't lose control. So he struggles with that once or twice. But when he sees Stryker, it sends him into a flurry and he forgets who he is. And he suddenly is young Wolverine again. And in the past, he pops his claws and slashes Kitty, who is barely able to keep him holding on and going to the future. With her critically wounded, she says, I can do this for a while longer, but I don't know much how much longer I can. It is decided, well, there is someone who can help us. And Bobby and I'm trying to remember who goes with Bobby. I think it's Sunspot. Um, goes to save from underneath the X mansion rogue who is stuck under the, who has been uh, taken prisoner. Everybody thought she was dead. They free her. They have an adventure where they, they pull her out. They bring her back to the fortress where they are, where she absorbs Kitty's powers. And she is the one who is holding Wolverine there for the rest of the time, because they are the ones who had, they are the ones who had the connection. So that is the rogue cut. That is why Anna Paquin is like third build in the movie. And yet in the version you saw, she's literally in one shot. Uh, it also gives yeah. Bobby a whole hell of a lot to do. Bobby dies in the effort to retrieve rogue. Um, mm. And, and rogue just barely gets ba- rogue, just barely survives. How so much long, how much longer does this make this film? Uh, 20 minutes. That's, I mean, you're still looking at only two hours worth of film there. I know. I know. I don't know why it was decided that that would get cut out. Uh, it is certainly the film is better paced without it, but in a film that's trying to be epic, um, I think now they wouldn't do it, right? You could say that Ooh, Avengers, good, yeah. yeah, Avengers Endgame Avengers has changed is, a lot. Is, Avengers Endgame is slowly paced and for good reason. I think at the time, the idea was you can't make an X-Men movie slowly paced. Not this one. Mm-hmm. So that's what the road cut is. The second film, of course, that you have is the one in the past, which is the sequel to First Class, where essentially you've got the the story of is, is Mystique going to kill Trask or not? And this is the point where I guess we should go through. Uh, there's so many characters to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the characters in the movie as fast as we can uh, without going on forever and ever. Uh, any opinions about Warpath or Sunspot? Uh, cool to see them. You know, they all worked really hard. Yeah. And, who and who? Good job. Yeah. <laughs> who uh, who? Blink, good job. Moving on. Blink. We already said how cool was Blink. We got back uh, Colossus uh, from yeah. X2. Um, again, X-Men continuity. Little weird here because because uh, Colossus is a huge part of the Deadpool movies now. And the Deadpool movies have declared themselves to be part of this. So it was uh, when when Deadpool happened, it was always a little bit of an issue. Why didn't they just use this guy? I like the Colossus that they have, so I'm willing to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts about Colossus? I mean, you're, you're talking about essentially all of these characters, up to and including Storm, existed to be set pieces for the fights. So in terms of like they're use, so they're they're not characters, not in the tradi- not in the strictest sense of the word. Um, we don't really. I mean, we get the characters that we have in the future are Xavier, uh, Magneto, uh, Kitty Pride, Wolverine, Bobby, and 
really that's about it. Um, and even Bobby is he's only really a character because we have memories of his previous of his previous stuff. Um, we don't actually get into, you know, let we, we don't get into a point of where we can actually talk to people or talk about people's acting choices and things like that until we get into the past. Um, uh, the as we as we move forward, uh, going into blah, 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 sorry, I lost myself. Um, Major Striker, they just why they didn't get the guy back who had played him before in in uh, in X-Men Origins Wolverine. I don't know. I feel like that is maybe the one thing, the one part of the movie that I felt was shoved in there to give it a, a Wolverine connection because I just didn't feel that he was necessarily. I feel like I had had enough striker. I feel like the striker story had been told and done to death. Mm-hmm. And while I mean, he did, the, he, he made a good henchman for Bolivar Trask. Um, like it made a lot of sense. Um, but you're right. It does. It, there, we are. We are by now reaching a point where it's like it's awful convenient that in all of these anti-mutant things, it's always been this one guy. Yeah. Well, and I think that. <clears throat> He's the one guy, and of course, he's the guy who is helping Trask. He's the guy. He was never a henchman. That's the thing. And that's the thing that really bugs me. Um, the mm. fact that he is also, you know, the the linchpin of the Mystique arc that you're describing is her realizing that most of the first class characters are dead, which, again, the fact that they died off camera really kind of bugs me. Like, I liked those mm. characters. And, you know, Banshee in particular, I really enjoyed him. The fact that Havoc shows up for like a second and then, you know, you don't really see him. Then he's um, gone. Yeah. They kind yeah, of set up it, a false expectation there. Yeah. And, and you know, there were a bunch of X-Men first class characters that I dug and cared about and that they trained and the idea that, yeah, they just died off camera and let's just move on. They're not really that important. Let's do the characters we care about. It's it's. Again, as a sequel to X-Men First Class, it's a bit... If you were a big fan like I was, it's felt like a little bit of an FU. Um, so I would say that the storyline of Mystique realizing, oh, they really hate mutants, are going to do bad things, including the presence of William Stryker, is probably the weakest part of the movie for me. Let's talk about one of the strongest. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Evan Peters, the other guy from Kick-Ass playing Quicksilver? Oh, he that's the other guy. Um <laughs> Well, yeah, because he was he was, was he was, was Kick Ass's best friend in Kick Ass, and also and of course, played, of course, Kick Ass played, played Quicksilver. Played the other Quicksilver. Yeah, yeah. What did um, you think of no that of was him uh, and his scene? that was at the time? I think that was the first time we got this the 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 bullet time experience of somebody going into super speed, uh, and that was. I mean, and since then we've seen that happen a lot, where the whole world slows down, and we see the person moving in between it. But it was the whole scene in that Pentagon room where. Uh, Quicksilver just puts his earphones on and then just goes about doing that whole thing. That is just a masterfully delightful uh, minute and a half of film. And the uh, fact that he's playing time in a bottle is awesome. Yeah, it's just it's uh, it's great. I, I mean, I really like that. It's it's clear that they're trying to make him sort of, you know, like the, the traditional archetype sort of like punk kid. Uh, he comes off as a lot less annoying than a lot of the the punk kid types do. Um, he's not quite as abrasive. Uh, as as he could have been, so I, I mean, I thought he was a I thought he was a great character. Um, I was kind of surprised that he didn't just go with them, um, but uh, but it was a great his inclusion in the film was quite good. I have a speedster problem. Um, the presence of a speedster makes I mean, the speedster is always going to be the most powerful person in the room. And I I don't know if you watch the Flash. I watch the Flash a lot, and there's always the issue with the Flash that. It doesn't make sense that anyone is ever a threat to a speedster. Mm-hmm. And so I think his inclusion would mean that nothing else would work. 
there are no that surprises yeah. like he Speed, can he speedsters can, let, let me say speedsters are to superhero films what cell phones are to horror films yeah you 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 want to see what they can do and then you need to get them out fast because they solve all the problems they solve um, all, and, literally every problem and having a show like the flash where he can run as fast as he needs to to run back in time but sometimes somebody gets the drop on him with a gun is mm-hmm. you know one would think that that in an action situation he is always moving at least slightly faster than the rest of the world just to make mm-hmm. sure um so yeah um didn't think much about Bishop. Bishop was fine. I'm not a fan of Bishop in the comics. I love that they are including as many X-Men as they can, but ugh. Um uh okay, Sean Ashmore as as Bobby Drake. I've always loved his portrayal of Iceman. And of course, Iceman is the first X-Men X-Man that I ever knew. Um and we talked about him a little bit in X3. Uh, did you watch Spider-Man and his amazing friends a long time ago? So Spider-Man and his amazing friends was Spider-Man, Iceman and a character named Firestar. And what Iceman could do in the show and he did in the comics was create this ice slide that he slid around on and did, did cool ice stuff on seeing it in this movie um, for people specifically of my generation um, was just so fun and such a callback to something that I cared so much about that it made scenes that would be easily dismissed as just action scenes. It made them sort of personal for me because I love to see it. So, uh, cool. and, and I think Sean Ashmore did a good job. Okay. I'm going to let you talk so a little get bit on to about the actual characters. Yeah. Yeah. Peter. Well, I, here's the thing. Sean Ashmore, uh, Bobby's a huge character in X3 and he's a big character in the version of this movie that I saw. He's a, um, in the version so, of the film you saw. Yes. Um, um P- Peter Dinklage is Bolivar Trask. I kind of forgot was he was in this movie. choice. Yeah. yeah. Oh Go no. I, re- I remember that. That was a, um, yeah, no, that was a, that was a great choice. Uh, and I loved what he did with the role. Um, worth noting that he is in the Avengers universe as well as in this universe. So he has been in movies with both Quicksilvers. Um, oh yeah, that's true. Uh, not in movies, but in things. All right. Now, uh, when this when thoughts, this film came out, so yeah. this was five years ago. So he had already made a big splash in Game of Thrones. Had he? Uh, that is, I guess so. Yeah, um, Game of Thrones. I mean, after by season one, he was the biggest name in Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's season, season Game one. of Thrones came out just before this. He'd been in other things. Mm-hmm. I remember him from Elf. Oh, and, he was so things, good in Elf and things like that. But no, he is. Uh, he's good at this, and and is you know sort of legitimately evil. He's the bad guy, I guess. I guess that's my mm-hmm. only issue. He's not bad enough to be the bad guy, nor is he good enough to be sort of the conflicted bad guy. And I feel like putting him in between those two things makes him a little bit milk toast. Like, I don't get the sense that he truly thinks that this is what's best for mankind, nor is he a good, like, mustache twirling bad guy. So he ends up feeling mm. lesser than I think that he could um, having nothing to do I mean, with. They probably could have gotten away with a. Uh, I I definitely got the sense that he was convinced that this was best for mankind. I, they probably could have gotten away with like one more speech or something. I did like his whole thing about the, uh, you know, when Stryker was saying, "Oh, you must really hate mutants," uh, and Trask saying, "Actually, no, I quite admire them," uh, which to me really helped differentiate him from uh, Stryker's more. Uh, you know mutant phobic attitude but Trask being just like no I quite admire them but they are absolutely a threat to my species 
Uh, so you get the sense that Trask's motivation is entirely, which is always also kind of a weird thing now that I'm talking about it. I, and I guess, granted, it's evolutionary. We just take it for granted that <laughs> I'm going off on a weird track here. We always just take it for granted that the preservation of the human race, as opposed to people who are really, 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 really close to human, is much more imperative. Uh, you know, it's when you've got Homo sapien versus Homo superior. It's the the whole idea of, um, oh, we have to protect our species is that is that is people speaking from, I guess, a biological imperative. But so much of civilization up until this point has been how socially we have evolved way past the biological imperative, like the biological imperative is survival of the fittest. And so much of civilization is specifically uh, going against that. Uh, it's, it's always so this is just amusing. It's always interesting to me when people are just saying it's like, oh, no, the human race absolutely has to be preserved. Yeah, I mean, it's I think the thing that would have have done it for me um, and I hear what you're saying, but I think that what would have done it for me is the idea that he had a benevolent idea in mind for what would be done with the mutants. I think that's the one thing that would have made it more interesting to me if he said, hmm. if he said, I'm not just protecting us, I'm protecting them. You know, what this will, what this will do is, is create a, you know, a, a sentinel, uh, which of course is the you know, term, something to watch over, something, something to make sure that, uh, that our species remain, our species remain in balance and protects them from the hatred of our species. Something, something where hmm. he's essentially going, this is what's best for everyone. And, and, you know, and I'm a good guy. And what he's saying is horrible. But, you know, somebody mm -hmm. like 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 the person who came up with the idea of 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 separate of, of separate but equal during seg segregation time. The idea was, you know, you clearly look at the person who, who created segregation and they were like, well, let's let's write a law where where, you know, we have separate stuff, but everybody gets the same thing and then nobody gets hurt. Um, and so this is in the era. Of obviously, in the in the face in the obviously in the face of history, a horrific and. You know, an abominable exactly. idea same, in its own same, right, but possibly made same with thing. Same thing with intentions. don't ask, don't, don't ask, don't tell. I remember don't ask, mm -hmm. don't tell came out, and it was a very liberal idea. The idea is okay, we can have gays in the military, and we just won't talk about our sexuality. But then that way, we're not restricting anybody from anything. It it pleases both sides, and it gets the job done for getting gays into the military if they want to be. There was definitely a sense of this is the best we can get right now. Yeah, and and it ended up being a. a a really negative thing for for that community and i think that if you had him portrayed as a guy who has a terrible idea that he thinks is the best that they can do but we see how terrible that idea eventually is then you have the same thing as you know just like the idea of segregation you look forward and you go oh no this is a terrible idea and that's what the 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 future is like yeah no of course it's a terrible idea but he doesn't you know, realize how terrible it is i think that I mean, would have I, driven I, home the theme that they might be i going totally through. i think i totally get that i think that that absolutely could have worked for his character but the way that they did it, now that we're talking about it, makes me actually think um, he is actually very representative of a 1970s American power broker. Um, keep in mind, the 70s were still right in the middle of the Cold War. I mean, that was the whole reason for Vietnam. This is when we're dealing with Kissinger and uh, and Nixon and 
these were all men who basically had the idea of nope american superiority and you know american superiority and you know the spread of democracy but particularly american democracy as an end <coughs> excuse me as an end in and of itself um you never heard Nixon or Kissinger, these people necessarily talking or doing much more than lip service about the um, about, well, no, this is going to be best for the good of humanity or something. It was very much. Nope. We are the people that need to be on top. And that is exactly what we're going to do. Um, the uh, you know, you, you go back historically and look at the decisions that led to Vietnam and to a lot of these things. And I mean, to be completely honest, a lot of it is just a lot of really powerful men uh, you know, swinging their proverbial members around. And in that sense, Bolivar Trask is kind of representative of that part of the era where that mindset was was not uncommon uh, in American politics. Um, moving uh, m- moving forward, um, Ellen Page is Kitty Pride. We've already talked about her. She doesn't make much of an impression in this film. She's fine. Anna Paquin, mm-hmm. from the what I saw as Rogue, again, she's fine. She's delivering a short performance that's not as good as the performance she did. Nicholas Holt. Um, this is a guy, I don't know why this guy isn't a bigger star than he is. This guy's, I like him a hell of a lot. I liked him a lot in first class. I like him even more now. I really enjoy his, uh, his beast. And I'm going to tell you when we get to later films, um, I'm, while I don't like some of the things that happen, he gets better and better. Um, any thoughts mm. about him um, and about Beast in particular? Because I feel like Beast doesn't, isn't given a lot to do, but I think that he is good. Yeah. The, I mean, it's definitely, it's neat to see his Beast now compared to the Beast in uh, First Class. Because First Class was about, it was all about him denying that aspect of himself. And in this, we're seeing somebody who is much more comfortable with it. So that in itself was, you know, every time that he just like, will, I mean, you know, that he beasted out, uh, but did it under his own control and uh, under his own desire. Like that was, it was cool to see somebody who is much more at peace with themselves than they were in a previous movie. And yet he is clearly an enabler for Xavier, which is also a really interesting. Yes. Like you watch, you go, That's an interesting what he's dichotomy, doing is yeah. not good. Um, Halle Berry is Storm. I will say this. She's not in it much, but this is the best Storm that I I talked about how much I hated her. I hated her as an actress because of Storm. I wouldn't see other films she did because of how mad I was at what she did to Storm. She's great in this. She's great as Storm in this movie. I will come say she was going to be in it more. She had a surprise pregnancy and her growing belly made it difficult for them to do it. So she was cut out of the film more than she was expected to be. But uh, Mm -hmm. she's really good in this. She's so good in this that I it's funny. I watched this in the very next film I watched was I rewatched John Wick three in which she also features. And I love her in both. Uh, I think I may be ready to forgive Halle Berry. Um, for what a toad does when it's struck by lightning. Joss I'm, Whedon's I'm sure greatest line. A, I'm sure that will mean a great deal to her. Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique. Um, I like her better, I guess somewhat better than I did in the last, last film. Um, your thoughts. I want to get your thoughts on her. Um, so, yeah, it's cool seeing Mystique. Uh, you know, this is the first time that we're like, oh, we're back to good old fashioned, like amazing karate kick ass Mystique. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Jennifer Lawrence, who, again, I've said I've gone on record. I, I like her work. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I thought she's done really amazing stuff with. There was nothing particularly memorable 
to me about her mystique, not in a good or a bad way. Uh, in terms of the character, I found it, I remember the first time I watched this being surprised that, uh, that Mystique was actually getting a, not a rewrite, but she was, she was getting a sort of do-over that they were looking at the character, which I guess is sort of a continuation of what they did with first class. They were taking the character and, um, and actually taking her and giving her the chance to, you know, redeem herself, to go in a different direction. Uh, I did think the continual mentioning of the theme of the way that Charles and I loved the relationship of Charles and Mystique in this one. The the fact that it was so clear that all their life, Charles had been trying to control Mystique, to push her, to sort of, you know, we saw that all over the place in first class. And so the moment, you know, in the moment of truth, when Charles very, very specifically, even though he could have um, you know, <laughs> which Charles actually takes a huge major risk essentially by not controlling Mystique. Um, you know, when he flat out admits that he's saying all my life, I've been trying to control you and, and I was wrong. And that is exactly not the thing I should be doing. You are amazing just as you are. Like there's a, it was really the, we were seeing the conclusion of a two movie arc about the relationship between these two. Um, and to me, it was actually one of the more, it was one of the stronger, more central arcs to the film. Uh, and I was not expecting that at all. And I really liked, I always like it when a story that is about the salvation of the universe, which essentially this one is, um, or when you're trying to save something on a global scale, but at the same time, it comes down to saving one person or, you know, it becomes about the choices that one person makes. Uh, and I think they really achieved that very well here. Um, I will give her the scene where Magneto is trying to kill her, um, the despair and the betrayal that she feels in that scene mm, and the scene yeah. itself is a really good, is a really, really good scene. Um, okay. Michael Fassbender. This guy is so good. He's just yeah. so good. Um, you know, the, the, how dedicated he is to, to this concept of, of doing whatever is necessary. And the fact that, that, that now means, you know, harming other mutants, which is something he said he would never do, um, mm -hmm. is I love I love him. And to see him as this and then watch Ian McKellen as uh, watch Ian McKellen as the other Magneto. I see how this guy becomes that guy. Yeah. And yet um, I can see that this intense guy would eventually the, the difference between the two of them is it tells me about his whole journey, about his lifetime journey. Um, and, and I, I can't say enough about him in this role. Of course, this is Ian McKellen's last time as Mag as Magneto. Um, I don't like how frail Ian McKellen seems as Magneto in this film. This is only mm -hmm. supposed to be, um, this is only supposed to be like 15 years after X3 and everyone else just seems to be doing okay. And certainly we know my, you know, Ian McKellen is not a frail man. He was not frail mm -hmm. at the time that this was being done. Um, I understand why they're doing it to show how kind of tired he is, but I, I, I sort of wish that he would have been um, that that there would have been sort of a meeting of of the two Magnetos. Not that they would meet meet each other, but that you would have a sense of the fire of mm -hmm. the first Magneto and the second Magneto. That's the you know they seem so different from each other. Um, that I would have liked to see the evolution, but I still can see Fassbender channeling what he needs to. I mean, he's just, 
I, I have an yeah. actor crush on this dude. He's so good. I, um, I think with Fassbender, the what I like about his performance with Magneto is that any scene he's in, um, there's a you know, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, if you're having a if there's a dinner party and somebody takes a loaded gun and just sets it down on a table for the remainder of the party, if you're in the same room as that loaded gun, no matter what you're talking about or who you're talking about it with, there is always some small part of your attention at the back of your mind that is keeping an eye on that gun uh, just in case. And with Magneto, uh, with Fastbender's Magneto, there is always just this quiet, ever-present threat. Um, Magneto walks into a scene and there's tension because of just the possibility of... It's not like a Joker thing of, oh, he's definitely going to come in and screw everything up. Uh, it's more like just that he might not. He might not see the need to. But if he does, he's definitely going to go. He's definitely going to do it. Um, I did like Ian. I, I see what you're saying about uh, Ian McKellen being frail with it. I did feel it sort of that di- there was a benefit to the dichotomy there in that it shows just how much Magneto had suffered over time. Uh, it certainly makes him a much more. God, this is the most sympathetic I've ever. I've always liked McKellen's Magneto, but man, he's, you just feel for him. Uh, his scene yeah. at the end talking to Charles about, it, he's like, oh, if we could have just had a f- all those years wasted fighting each other, if we could have just had a few That's of those a great back. Scene. Like, it's heartbreaking. Um, and what a lot I love of that is that... A lot of that heartbreakingness does come from the the combination of the tiredness and the frailty and the regret that's just pouring from him. Um, speaking of that scene, uh, uh, we have James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart as, as Professor X. Um, Professor X could really be a boring character if he needed yeah. to be. And as a matter of fact, in the first three X-Men movies, he is a boring character, except for the fact that he's played by Patrick Stewart playing him. Yeah, so well. I was just going to say it's it, it's because he's boring, but we don't care. It's Patrick Stewart. Yeah, he Patrick Stewart is making him not boring. I'm so glad that Logan eventually comes along and lets Patrick Stewart do a really oh. not boring version. Yeah. Um, uh, but he's not boring here either. Um, what I love there are two scenes, my two favorite scenes in the movie. We've got to be Patrick Stewart meeting James McAvoy. It's so neat. Mm-hmm. It's so yeah. cool to see that. Um, and also, you know, we talk about the difference between the, the characters. It's interesting, the difference between the chemistries. Because McAvoy and Fassbender absolutely have an electric chemistry. As do Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Totally different mm-hmm. chemistry. One totally is, different. you know, the idea that the one chemistry evolves into the next chemistry. That's what I love. As I go, mm-hmm. I can see the, this chemistry eventually becomes these guys who love each other. Um, and mm-hmm. after everything they've been through. And I I dig it. And then we get to yeah. Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. At this point, like he's he's not giving you anything extraordinarily new than he's given you before. Again, so glad mm-hmm. Logan eventually comes and also the Wolverine. But at this point, he is the Outback Steakhouse of the X-Men films. He gives you <laughs> there's nothing great about what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good, though. Um, yeah. And he looks spectacular. The, 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 I got to give the shirtless scene he does in this. I was watching this uh, with my wife. She liked that scene. Oh, that's that's uh, a good. That is some good gratuitous nudity there. I think he uh, I think the reason he stopped playing Wolverine is if you watch his Wolverine, he goes from being like kind of in shape through the Wolverine in this to the point where he's just like he's it's not healthy anymore. It's really <laughs> it's crazy how he looks in this film. Um, mm-hmm. like human bodies should not look like that. And that's a lot of yeah. dehydration. He like, he gets pumped up and then he de- dehydrates. So the skin like sticks to the muscles. Um, mm-hmm. it's nuts. He's really good. 
um, it's easy to forget how good he is because you're so used to him doing this role now. But he's really, mm-hmm. really um, quite and good. Also, Logan doesn't have it's like he's he is more of the catalyst than the agent in this story. Um, he he is the messenger. But the major pivotal choices. This is not a movie about Logan, even though we it, it seems that way at first. Um, it's it's worth noting that oh! he yeah, that Magneto removes him from play a full 10 minutes before the climactic moment that actually changes the future. Like Logan is Lozagun's presence is not needed at that final showdown. Um, so this is a film that, you know, and, and aside from the, of course, I love the subtle, uh, you know, the subtle thing of him, you know, popping the claws and they come out as bone. And the moment that I had forgotten, which I just delighted in was him walking through the metal detector, not getting anything and then stopping and, because as an audience member, I see him walking through the metal detector. And my first thought is that metal detector is going to go off. And I felt disconcerted by the fact that it doesn't. And then seeing him immediately notice that and get disconcerted as well. That was a that was a very enjoyable moment. So um, we come to the point in the in the film where we ask uh, on a scale of one to five Wolverine claws. How would you rate X-Men Days of Future Past? Ah, uh, definitely at least a four. Um I remember I said, again, when I walked out of this film, that it was absolutely my favorite of the X-Men films. Um, my second viewing, it didn't hit me as hard as the first one did. I mean, it's still very, very good. Um, I, I wish I could remember what I rated X-Men First Class, because this should this should definitely be rated at least as much. Um, so it's a, it also was worth noting that it was the most successful of the x-men films uh you know sort of it brought the x-men well first class did more to actually reignite the franchise uh so i'm just gonna give this a solid four i'm comfortable with that you know i don't know if it's the best x-men film we've said this before it is certainly the most x-men film um (laughs) you will never get a film that so well blends the massive action x-men spectacle that we continue to have in apocalypse um and in the marvel films and the X-Men heart, the serious, the fact that it still takes itself seriously. Yeah, um, the heart was in watching this, this. In watching this in first class uh, next to each other, I got to say, I think I like this one more now. I didn't like it as much the first time around watching them back to back. I think I like this one more just because it just delivers on everything that I want. Mm-hmm. Like they, I walked away fully satisfied. Was it as stylish? Yeah. What is that? Was it as good a movie? Maybe not. But it gave me everything that I wanted. Um, and for that reason, I'm going to give this movie a very rare five. I'm not Ooh. going to allow my continuity issues to to mess with my feeling about this film. The X-Men Whoa. films, ex- the X-Men films exist to give me everything that I wanted from the X-Men and no X-Men film gives me everything that I want from the X-Men except this one. That, um, they all give me other great assessment. things. But this gives me all of it. So for giving me my X-Men as they appeared in the comics and for giving me everything that I loved about it growing up, a five out of five. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, next week we will not be giving fives. (laughs) I can promise you that. Yeah. Next week we do X-Men Apocalypse, where we finally start to see what happens when the X-Men franchise goes off the rails. But for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. 
Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 